Hey everyone, welcome to Journey to the West. I'm Jay, and I'm joined here with Sen. Hi everyone, I'm Sen. And a special guest, Shang. Hey everybody, I'm Shay. And today we're going to do basically a rehashing of a previous episode that we've done before on the White Freeze. Uh, we felt that we've learned a lot more since then, and we wanted to provide more sources and just have a more organized way of talking about this issue so it's a lot clearer to explain to people. So what is White Freeze? The White Freeze is basically social exclusion due to racism. It's kind of like the counterpart to white flight, which is something that we've discussed before in a previous episode, except it's the white majority that is excluding the minority. Now, there's a lot of research out there on social exclusion uh, based around poverty and mental health, but not a lot about systemic racism. So we'd like to contextualize that today, specifically through the lens of being Asian diaspora. Now, this is something that can operate both publicly and privately. Some good examples of how this works at a systemic level would be, say, healthcare. So not everybody has access to healthcare that's quality and affordable. Because of racial discrimination, your doctor might not believe the symptoms that you're telling them. Um, this can also be deportations. Because you are the other, uh, the government decides that you don't belong here for a number of reasons, and this is a good way to get you out. There's also segregation from, say, the era of Jim Crow laws to the more social segregation of white people just don't want to be around people of color. And there's a great paper that explains how this works in racially mixed communities, specifically with black people and not Asians, but a lot of what goes on is applicable to us as well. So basically, they're not allowed in neighborhood communities. Uh, there are euphemisms saying, you know, we don't want to reduce the property value of the home. So, you know, we don't want these people here. So they don't necessarily outright call it a race thing, but they use other ways to get around it. And yeah, um, real estate agents are like notoriously, I wouldn't say they're racist, but there's like a racist culture um, around how they operate. I've read articles before, like, I think the last live stream, like, not the last one, the first one we did, we did talk about, um, like, in Australia, for example, just anyone who isn't white has a lot of issues, like, getting a place to rent or buying a house because of, you know, racism. Like I've said before, I had a friend who was a real estate agent and she would like just make comments about certain races like um, Pacific Islanders or just even Asians saying that, oh, people don't, people who have cooking that is too like pungent or strong or smelly or whatever that, 
And it was like really annoying because she was Asian as well. So I feel like the way she was describing people of other races and kind of leaving out, you know, white people is a very, it's like a culture thing in that specific line of work. I mean, you remember that fucking racist BTS? Um, Was it Rilta? online and it's like these people have jobs and they're like affecting people's life and their um outcomes and stuff i just want to comment on that real estate guy in new york um when he made the comment on twitter about bts is that even though that you know he might thought that he was joking or something like that it reflects what he thinks about asian americans and asians in general and you can't tell me that it's not going to trickle down into mm-hmm. his work in real life. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, looking for a home and looking for uh, someplace to live, I actually do have some personal experience as far as uh, discrimination that goes on in real estate. Uh, for example, one time I responded to an ad uh, that was posted on a, a realtor's site for a, for a rental property. And when I called up the real estate agent, you know, we were talking about the property and its location um, and its amenities. And she said, well, it is a very nice neighborhood, but it's very ethnic. So I don't know if that's going to be a problem for you because she thought that I was white. So Mm. she felt comfortable saying this type of shit. So she asked me if I wanted to see the place and obviously I didn't want anything to do with her, but just to fuck with her and waste her time. She said, yeah, let's meet up tomorrow. And when I showed up, the fucking look on her face was absolutely priceless. <laughs> and she was like, oh, you know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean that to be offensive. What I said yesterday, <laughs> I said, really? So what did you mean by that? Uh, and she, she really had nothing to say. Why the fuck did you say it then if you're not trying to be offensive? And by the way, that ethnic neighborhood was uh, its a primarily Asian-American neighborhood that she was referring to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. But yeah, this is just like one of the many ways that the white freeze can manifest. And I'm sure you have a lot more personal experiences. But uh, it can be, you know, not just real estate, but also simple microaggressions. Like, for instance, that one time I remember you were mistaken for waitstaff at a restaurant because you were Asian and it was an Asian restaurant. All right. We had gone out to, to eat. It was at a, a family function. And this woman um, who was a non-Asian POC came up to me and asked me, where the bathroom was and she was kind of asking me like other questions too, you know, as if, you know, she thought that I was an employee. Um, but I wasn't dressed in, you know, any way that would indicate that I was an employee because they had, I think like polo shirts or something with the restaurant's name. So it'd be obvious um, who the service were, but she was treating me as if I worked there. And then I told her that, I'm sorry, you know, I don't work here. And she actually apologized. She was very apologetic. I think she kind of realized what happened because, you know, it was an Asian restaurant. And so, you know, there was that. But it shows how deeply ingrained this is in our society that people of color also internalize, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these ideas. 
Yeah, because it just socially, it's ingrained in us that if you're an Asian person at an Asian restaurant, you're there to serve. You couldn't possibly be a patron there as well. And that really goes to show how pervasive it is. Yeah, even other people of color can adopt this. I feel like the thinking of a lot of Asians, like the way they orientate themselves in a lot of social situations is one of like service. Like I think I mentioned this in the last White Freeze pod where if there was like that one white person that came over to your house and everybody's Asian, like suddenly I feel like the dynamic changes a lot in terms of how they approach that white person it's always like, oh, trying to explain what the food is or trying to accommodate their needs just in case they can't eat the food or like, I don't know, just, I don't know, one of subservience, at least subconsciously, that I've noticed. Because um, like I grew up in an enclave and I hung out with mostly um, like Vietnamese and other Asian people just because of the, the amount of, you know, other Asians I was around. Yeah, there's definitely an attitude of deference that you can notice. Like, I, if anybody remembers, I think it was a Prego commercial. where yeah, they that. Yeah, they featured a Filipino family. And then, you know, this woman brought her white boyfriend. And initially, they were all speaking excitedly with each other in Tagalog. And then all of a sudden, uh, the woman was like, shh speak English because he doesn't understand, but it's like you're going into their space as a guest. This is, it's like adopting white fragility on behalf of the white partner, which is really annoying. Like that, that could have been such a great commercial showing how, you know, every family loves eating pasta or some shit like that, but it turned into some weird white supremacist stuff. You know, what strikes me about that is that when people of color go into white spaces, whites do not bend over backwards to accommodate us. In fact, a lot of times we get frozen out. We're completely excluded and it's done through very passive aggressive means. So when a white person enters an Asian space and then everyone is bending over backwards to, to, you know, to kiss their ass, it's kind of, it's like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, that reminds me, you have a great story about, I think, one of your aunts. Who, Which one? There's a few stories. The one who was in New York with the car. I think you tweeted oh, about this. Oh, my God, yeah. So I was having a um, talk with my aunt about, uh, about like, you know, racism and white supremacy. And now she, she's an immigrant. She's a first-generation Asian-American. So she wasn't really grasping what I was telling her. And she said, that's impossible. You know, white people are so nice. They're so great. Maybe you just had a bad experience with them, but just because there's a few people who are bad doesn't mean they're all bad. And you can't judge white people, you know, because of the actions of a few. And then she gave me this example of where one time she was out um, with another family member in the car and she was, I think the truth, you know, going to the store or something, she had to parallel park and she was having a hard time parking the car. So this uh, random white guy who was walking by saw it and he asked her, oh, like, do you need some help with parking? And she said, oh, yeah, sure. That'd be great. Thank you. So she got out of the car and she let him get 
in the car with our other family member still in the back seat and had him part the car. Now, luckily, of course, you know, this guy actually was just a genuinely a nice guy. He was, uh, you know, a good Samaritan, so obviously nothing happened. But she was so trusting of him to let him get in her vehicle just because, you know, he was a, a white guy. So that was like, I don't know, it, it's, it's the white warship, and it's just, it's amazing how, you know, all judgment just kind of goes away. Because if he was anybody but a white person, including another Asian, I don't think she would have done that, to be totally honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, basically, this whole social exclusion thing, this notion of the white freeze, segregation, discrimination, whether that's at the personal level or in public at the systemic level, all of this serves to clearly define who is in the in-group and who's in the out-group. It's at its most innocuous, it's a way to define community. And at its worst, it's obviously discriminatory. And in the case of the white freeze, especially for people of color, there are more severe consequences than hurt feelings. And, you know, we've previously talked about how this can affect your chances at getting a home in real estate. But there are other ways, too. Um, there's actually a lot of research about the connection between living in a racist society and your health. The stress of living in a racist society actually elevates your cortisol levels in the body, which over time can cause inflammation. And that chronic inflammation can then contribute to other diseases like heart disease and just physically erode you. Other research has shown that actually the tips of our chromosomes, which are called telomeres, can erode in response to this kind of stress, which damages the DNA in our cells. Kind of crazy. And it prevents these cells from functioning properly, which can lead to things like cell death. Um, not really good for your organs. I'm sure this also doesn't help with things like cancers. So there's actually an elevated risk for these things for people of color, generally. Um, there's also this really cool research that has shown that trauma can be passed on to later generations through DNA. Like there's a kind of memory that your DNA can store physically and your offspring can inherit that. So it doesn't just affect the people who are experiencing this, but also uh, our kids. And um, I have a hunch, and I'm sure other people have thought about this, that racism is closely related to the very high rates of uh, mental health issues among Asian Americans. And I'm sure we can broaden this to Asian diaspora in general, but we do have suspiciously high rates of uh, mental health problems. And nobody's really tested that connection in a very direct way. But there is a lot of research that shows that you know, we are bullied at rates that are higher than other children because of race. And uh, a lot of Asian Americans at least understand that we face racism, but we also don't understand 
that it's a systemic problem and we still believe that it's these individuals kind of like you know every other apologist who says not all white people we think it's just you know the people we happen to interact with are racist to us but not that it's a societal thing and this is what we're trying to dispel uh, with pretty much every pod that we do it kind of feels like we're conspiracy theorists yeah. and we're like here's all of the evidence please believe us and like these same motherfuckers will come out of the woodwork and be like well it's probably because of the tiger parenting it's probably because of the asian culture and it's like why does every fucking poc have issues with like their quality of life like, are you just going to say it's like a cultural thing? We need to ascend to whiteness. It doesn't make any sense. And like, if you look at Occam's razor, take the least, um, you know, arduous or complex route to, you know, understand a problem, then this makes the most fucking sense. But no, we just have to do some crazy mental gymnastics about how, what, like, what is wrong with us? What's wrong with our culture? What's wrong with, like, not embedding ourselves into a white society properly. You know, that's where we're at at the moment. Yeah, we're basically, and as a community, a lot of us have internalized this idea that it's our fault and that racism is not a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. And that's by design because the people who are in power, uh, specifically white people and more specifically white men, have a vested interest in making sure that this is the way things are. Like, this is the status quo. And uh, if you recall Racist Love and what Frank Chin and Jeffrey Paul Chan were talking about, it's most successful when the oppressed actually internalize these beliefs and perpetuate them on their own. So there's minimal work to be done if you are the person in power. Because we're already doing it for you. But uh, moving forward, there are some things that we can do to change the situation. We want to give everybody some hope out there. Because there are things that we can do to move the needle forward. Uh, one big one is to get political. Uh, vote. Pressure your reps for legislation that's actually helpful to us to end discrimination at the systemic level. Uh, don't be politically apathetic and be really critical of politicians who claim that they're for you, but their actions speak otherwise. And this is just one way of using collective power. Uh, another one is social. We need to set social boundaries and enforce them. So if we can define what is and is not racist, whenever somebody crosses that line, we can call them out for it, impose consequences for them not conceding to that and not respecting that boundary. And in the process, also educate people who are on the fence or don't necessarily understand the concept. And there are plenty of examples of this. Uh, Twitter, social media is great for that. Uh, if we want to reference the whole BTS thing with the real estate guy, the Dolce & Gabbana thing, that was also collective action. There are plenty of ways to do this with like minimal effort, really. 
tweeting is probably one of the easiest things that you can do to get the word out about things like this. You can sign petitions. Uh, you can even go into your own communities and start initiatives there. So there are plenty of ways to do this. And basically the goal is the next time somebody thinks about doing something racist, they think about that several fucking times before they do it because the consequences are so strong. They don't want to take that risk. And this is probably one of the biggest issues within the Asian American community is the, you know, enforcing the social boundaries. Cause a lot of times when you have an Asian American who will actually call out racism, you'll get a huge group of, you know, other Asian Americans will come running in to defend racist whites and gaslight the person who's calling out the racism, say that, oh, it's a personal issue. It's something that's wrong with you. Why are you making trouble? And, you know, we've seen this so many times with like, you know, um, if you see some like videos on YouTube where uh, there's a Asian person who's being harassed uh, by white racists, um, like, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, there was that guy on the, the subway, I think out in California, and there was that older white guy who was calling him a chink or something like that. And, or they're like the N-word, like Asian N-word. And when the guy finally, you know, stood up and told him, hey, like, if you don't shut the fuck up, I'm going to, I'm going to knock you up or something like that. Suddenly, all these other people, uh, you know, white POC, I think there were a couple Asians as well, suddenly, you know, told him, hey, you need to sit down. You need to calm down. So it's this thing that, you know, Asians have to know our place, so to speak. And if we get uppity, then that's a problem. And this is socially enforced, unfortunately, by other Asian Americans. Yeah, that's like, that reminds me of tone policing. Like, even if you're saying, if you're just being assertive about the racism that you're facing and calling people out, there are a lot of other POC out there who advocate for being nicer. <laughs> like, one, that serves no purpose because if somebody is being racist to you, they're not going to suddenly stop being racist to you because you said it in a nice way. Like they're already not here in good faith to begin with. So there's no fucking point wasting your time. And secondly, it's just, it feels like it's performative. Like, oh no, what will the white people think? The fuck? <laughs> mm -hmm. And like a lot of these like people on like the Facebook groups, especially when they talk about their high horse, they're like, oh, we need a no violence, guys, peace and love. Like, what the fuck is this bullshit? Like, I don't believe it. I don't buy the fucking hippie ideology in life, you know? It just makes me really mad. And I think these people have never confronted a racist before or like any racism mm. in their lives because. Or at least not successfully. Mm. When you first encounter it, um, it's like it makes you freeze up, you know, you don't know how to respond. But I feel like the aggressive response makes the most sense and I feel like it preserves your uh, mental health a lot better at least because like with the white guy, they don't give a shit. They're just like being racist every other day and they'll forget about you, you know. But for you, you you keep living in that – um that moment, you keep remembering it, and you can't really get out of that mental space. 
you know, like they can dispel the aggression, but for you, it's like you have to keep quiet about it. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that the people who are experiencing the racism, whatever your opinion is about what constitutes racism, the person who is harmed is the one who has the trauma. It's not the person causing the harm, right? So we should be supporting the victims here, which brings us to our third point. Support others by actually listening to their experiences instead of interjecting your own opinions about how this wasn't racist and you're being too sensitive. Because <laughs> what purpose does that serve? Um, it's really unfair to make people who have been traumatized, who have been harmed, do extra emotional labor to not only placate their abusers, but also you who is chiming in with unwanted opinions that nobody asked for. The best that we can do is support each other when we face racism and to help each other out, whether that's holding the perpetrators accountable or even just, you know, listening and understanding and definitely not gaslighting. The least you can do is not tell that person that their experience wasn't real. Oh, yeah, just shut the fuck up. Like, I don't care about racism. Then shut up, you know? God. <laughs> you know that gaslighting where you're told you know it's your fault uh, the problem lies with you that seems to be from talking with many other asian americans it seems to be such a common theme in our community um i remember even for me when i was growing up i grew up and you know in an all-white area so you know, i faced a ton of racism in the uh in school and when i would get home and try to tell my parents about what happened oh no like there's no reason that those kids would be mean to you unless you did something to them first so they were blaming me for you know being the victim of racism saying well they they wouldn't do these things unless you did something to them and for a long time i internalized that and that's and i really just came to hate myself because i was always told that it was me not that. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else that we want to add to this? Um, well, I think I'll just rehash what I said in the live stream. Asians are, sp are stuck in a place. Ideologically speaking, they're just stuck in a place that doesn't really allow them to see outside themselves because everything is attributed to your, or it's your agency. You have to empower yourself. Nobody likes you. You need to look more attractive. Like nobody likes you. You need to, you know, um, assimilate into the whiteness better, you know, which is what I think these, the psychology behind like subtle Asians is like, they want to group up and feel like they belong somewhere, but they do it through self-deprecation, to the point of self-flagellation, like, like, oh, sorry for being Asian, guys. It's that that kind of um, yeah, thinking. That's shame. Um, I guess briefly mentioning like this um, sociological concept, which is called the sociological imagination by C. Wright Mills. Basic sociology one hundred and one. So, essentially, he differentiates what the sociological imagination is by 
um, differentiating uh, personal troubles versus um, public issues. And the thing is, you need to have to bring this the the personal troubles, meaning like stupid racist Tinder dates that you have, and turns out they're racist, or you know the small just like racism that you face in your everyday life, like people asking if you eat dog or something, or some or can like scale up to like like full blown attack or um, abuse that you see in like public transit. And being able to like escalate or like take the personal trouble and making it into a public issue, like being able to transcend and take that and and weaponize that to um, allow for you and your community to understand like the racism and to empower yourselves to move forward and get the, like get rid of it. About like that's something that we've not been able to adequately do and the thing is there's people like doing the work you know there's people writing about it there's people talking about it but we've not been able to like as a collective consciousness to like ascend in that direction I, I don't I don't really like saying that but it sounds like <laughs> it sounds a bit nuts but like you know what I mean yeah we're basically we're trying to create this collective consciousness so that we can take collective action and actually change things as a group. Mm-hmm. And that is the hardest thing. But we're hoping yeah. that what we're doing here, um, not just the pod, but also everything connected to pro-Asian voice, which we've also been working with. Um, yeah, all of that is working toward that common goal. So we hope that anybody out here who is listening to our content and reading it, that You'll come along for the ride and you'll also be there when, you know, you're needed to take action. I think because it's like Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, um, I think mm. there was like a hashtag going around talking about like lunchbox stories. And like, oh God. that's like a good thing for like people who don't talk about like um, racism. Race at all. <laughs> but like, it's so juvenile at, at this point it's like it's very basic the whiteies didn't like my fucking lunch and like but now i've learned to accept myself because the whiteies like my food now it's like what like again it, it goes into the concept of personal trouble like oh i've had an issue with it my whole life but now like internally i've accepted myself and it's not like taking that and being like hey stop being fucking racist to me yeah. you know it it's just so uh, it's like the self-improvement bullshit that people peddle the racism you experience like the self-improvement will allow you to change your mind about it it's not changing the racism itself you'll notice that most of these self-help books are written by whites or uh, by asian americans who are you know Married to whites or in primarily white social circles. Like adjacent to whiteness. Yeah, right, adjacent to whiteness. And the big thing is this it's just gaslight. That's all it is. And it helps to reserve the status quo because they still drive narrative of oh, there's no racism, it's just you. So if you improve yourself, then people will stop harassing you or doing these things. And you will find happiness. 
And it's such a crock of bullshit, but it works so well to enforce white supremacy because it gets you to shut the fuck up when you no longer have that fight or, you know, I guess not even acknowledge that racism is a thing and you've, you've centered it on yourself. They went. Yeah. Basically, uh, we need to stop taking on an Asian identity that is all about placating whiteness and, and drinking boba. <laughs> basically we need to get deeper we need to get political and this is what we urge in all of the content that we're creating uh, if we're out of other stuff to say i think we can wrap up um before we close i'd like to promote a, a video a short doc well more like a 40 minute documentary that's going to be dropping today i believe at the time of this recording it should be out. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, it should be out. Uh, documentary. Uh, I mean, I was cringing while I was uploading. I'm like, uh, like, I guess I'll. I guess it has to come out. But I'm sure it'll um, be fine. It's a YouTube video, I guess. Um, I think the first part's about Chinese Americans from the late 1800s to early 1900s. Covers like, um, you know, uh. It, like Chinese women being hypersexualized, and the mentality that we still kind of live under today is like Asian men as the coolie, as the subservient, meek, mild, like laundry men, and then Asian women as you know literal prostitutes in the way that people view us. So yeah, and Sen did pretty much all the work for this. She did all the research and uh, put together the video. So we hope that you guys can uh, watch and learn something from it or use it to share with your friends to help explain our history. Yeah. And if they if they come to you, be like, how is this relevant? Like, ugh. I don't know what it to will do. verbally smack them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Shang, for joining us today. Oh, it was a pleasure being here. And I guess we'll sign off now. I'm Jay. You can find me on Twitter at J underscore M-A-R-A-A-N. Sentien, S-E-N underscore T-I-E-N-T. And J-T-T-W podcast on Twitter as well. Yep. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.